There are bumps on the road to personalized medicine. What bumps involve side effects of medicines that we take, and how can genetics smooth those bumps? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss the bumps in the road to personalized medicine is Dr. Dan Roden, Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology, Director of the Oates Institute for Experimental Therapeutics, and Assistant Vice Chancellor for Personalized Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Roden, thank you for joining us at ReachMD. Well, thank you for having me. So how well do commonly used medications actually work for the general population? Well, I think that if you asked your mother whether a medicine was going to work every time for every patient that it was ever administered to, she, a layman, would say, probably not. And I think we all recognize that medicines work sometimes in some patients and other times they don't work. I like to say that the commonest side effect of commonly used medications is failure to do what we as physicians think they ought to be doing when we prescribe them. That said, if you look at large surveys of drugs that are out there on the market, and you can argue about how best to judge this, it looks like medicines do what we think they ought to be doing somewhere between 50 and 80% of the time. It's pretty clear that there are patients who are benefiting fabulously from new medicines, and it's pretty clear there are patients who take medicines and really don't derive much benefit from them. So let's talk about this 50 to 80%. Are you saying that if you have 100 people, between 50 and 80% of them will have a medicine that works, or in one patient, it works sometimes 50 to 80% of the time? You know, when you're sitting in your office talking to one patient, the odds are zero or 100% unless they change over time. So I'm talking about a population of patients. So if we prescribe antihypertensive drugs, if we prescribe statins, if we prescribe platelet antagonists, if we prescribe antipsychotic drugs, if we prescribe antidepressant drugs, those are the kinds of major drug classes in which efficacy is imperfect. And for a particular patient, when you say it works, are you going to get the same result in patient A and patient B and both call them working drug where one might have a reduce their blood pressure by 20%, the other one only by 6%? Right. So the way in which we're used to seeing drug efficacy gauged derives from big clinical trials. So you would take a group of, let's say, antihypertensive, uh, hypertensive patients, and we'd give some of them placebo and some of them drug. And at the end of a big trial, we would say that the drug lowers blood pressure by X plus or minus Y millimeters of mercury. And that's the way physicians are used to sort of seeing those kinds of results. But if you actually display the results visually, the extent of blood pressure lowering or the extent of improvement in FEV1 with an anti-asthmatic drug or the extent of lowering of LDL cholesterol with a statin is a bell-shaped distribution. It's a normal distribution. It has a mean, and that's the X millimeters of mercury, and then it has a spread. And we're used to think about the spread as, you know, we're said, we, said, we would say X plus or minus Y millimeters of mercury. But the spread includes most patients, but there are always, no matter how you look at it, there's always a group of people at the very ends of those distributions in whom, for example, blood pressure would be lowered to a really marvelous extent, and there are other people in whom blood pressure wouldn't be touched at all. And so I think that that's the kind of variability in response that we don't think about when we think this is a drug that is good for blood pressure because it lowers blood pressure statistically significantly in a large population. And what are you doing at Vanderbilt that will help us to understand and maybe predict who those people are on that bell curve and where they fall? Well, I came to Vanderbilt 30 years ago because I was an internist. 
and I was interested in understanding a little bit more about how drugs work in people. So I did a fellowship in something called clinical pharmacology, and it turns out I was very lucky because Vanderbilt has the largest division of clinical pharmacology in the world. And one of the things that I get asked is, what does a clinical pharmacologist do, in fact? And after about a decade of being here, I finally had a pet answer to that, and that is we're scientists who are interested in understanding the question of variability in response to drugs. And very early on, when I first came here, there was a sort of story that genetics might play a role in that. There are lots of other factors that play a role in why people vary in their response to drugs. But we've been obsessed here by a genetic component to that variability. And I wouldn't want people to walk away saying, well, it's all about genetics. And some people accuse me of thinking that way all the time. I think it's a lot about environment. It's a lot about whether people take their medicines. It's a lot about drug interactions. And it's a lot about the mechanisms of the disease that we're trying to treat. And some of those mechanisms are obviously genetic as well. And then there's a genetic component to variability in drug action. So there are many, many components to variability in drug action. And one of the problems I think that we face in using pretty widely used therapies like blood pressure therapies or diabetes therapies is that we're treating a disease that we call high blood pressure, but in fact what that is is a hundred different diseases. And we just don't have the smarts yet to figure out what particular subtype my particular patient has. Because if I think if you did that, then you might be able to prescribe therapy directed at the mechanism of the disease. In cancer, they do that more and more. No one would go to a cancer doctor and the doctor would say, you have cancer, the treatment is X. People want to know what particular subtype of cancer do I have? And even the lay public has this expectation now that there will be some kind of profiling of their particular cancer that will tell the doctor what the best therapy might be or what their prognosis is. And I think the rest of therapeutics is moving in that direction, using markers like gene expression markers, like proteomics, the study of how many proteins are floating around in your blood or in your tumor, and genetics. When you talk about something like high blood pressure, so we take hypertension right now, we would call that a disease. Are you saying that really hypertension is a symptom of 10, 20, 50, 100 different diseases, and yet we're treating them all with the same medication when that might not be the right thing to do? I think that's a good way of saying it. If you went to a doctor 100 years ago, the doctor would say, you have anemia, here's the treatment, or you have jaundice, here's the treatment. And none of us would accept that right now because we understand that those are symptoms. Now, in treating high blood pressure, physicians are not completely ignorant of the idea that there are subtypes. We do know, for example, that Caucasian patients respond to a different set of drugs than do African-American patients. That suggests that the mechanisms of the disease, at least in those two major ethnic groups, may be somewhat different. But again, you'll find an African-American patient who will respond beautifully to beta blockers and will not respond to diuretics, while most African-American patients respond better to diuretics. So you'll always find this variability of response even within an ethnic group, but hypertension is a great example. My personal clinical focus has been on arrhythmias, and I think that atrial fibrillation is another great example of a common disease where we use the word, but it turns out there are many, many different subtypes of atrial fibrillation, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface on understanding what the molecular and the genetic basis for atrial fibrillation in a particular patient might be. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. With us is Dr. Dan Roden, professor of medicine and pharmacology at Vanderbilt University's School of Medicine. We're discussing how genetics can help us move down the road to personalized medicine. 
So let's talk a little bit about that work on arrhythmias. Who responds to drug therapies in patients that have arrhythmias and who doesn't? And what are we beginning to learn about those differences in patient response? So I like to think of clinical electrophysiologists as canaries in the therapeutic coal mine. I think that many of the lessons that we in the electrophysiology community have learned are applicable to many other areas of therapeutics. So one of the things that we've learned in the last several decades is that rather than being empiric about therapy, rather than saying, you have arrhythmia X, and I don't know anything about its mechanism, but I'll pick a drug off the shelf, the smart thing to do is to say, you have arrhythmia X, the mechanism of that arrhythmia is Y, and therefore the right drug for you is a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker, or or amiodarone, or flecainide, or whatever. That's one lesson we've learned. And parenthetically, although I'm a pharmacologist, you know, my major job is to make my patients better. And one of the things that we've done in clinical electrophysiology, we've defined quite precisely the mechanisms of some arrhythmias to the point where you can actually do targeted ablation of particular areas in the heart and actually cure patients. I like to say that the only cardiovascular physicians who are allowed to use the word cure are those who do radiofrequency ablation for arrhythmias. So more and more, we're turning to the idea that if you understand the basic mechanism, you can prescribe drugs in a much, much more rational way. In the arrhythmia world, we have the awkwardness that we really have three kinds of arrhythmias that we take care of. One are are patients who have or are at high risk for serious ventricular arrhythmias, like those that cause sudden death. And in those patients, I think the primary modality of therapy in general is non-pharmacological. It's an implanted cardioverter defibrillator device. Then we have patients who have regular supraventricular arrhythmias. The mechanisms of those are often reentrant, and often they lend themselves very nicely to ablation. And then we have the third big category is atrial fibrillation. And as I said before, I think there are many subtypes of atrial fibrillation. But again, ablation therapy, which targets not the upstream molecular mechanisms that actually cause the disease, but the sort of functional results downstream, those are turning out to be modestly effective. So I think we have room for improvement in the atrial fibrillation space. But the fact is that drugs have assumed a sort of secondary position in arrhythmia therapy, primarily because they are not as effective as either ablation or a defibrillator, and they carry risks of serious side effects, including drug-induced arrhythmias. And as you went from understanding somebody has X, this disease, to figuring out what caused the disease, are there some lessons from arrhythmias that will be generally applicable to other diseases? I think that the major lesson is, it sounds silly to say it this way, but knowledge is good. Understanding the fundamental mechanisms of disease translates often directly into understanding what the best kind of therapy is. And we've learned that in the arrhythmia space. The development of Gleevec for chronic myelocytic leukemia was another fabulous example of that. Understanding that the Philadelphia chromosome actually represents a a translocation that results in the development of an abnormal protein, and you can suppress that with Gleevec very, very specifically makes a a drug targeted to an underlying mechanism. So once you understand the underlying cellular and molecular mechanisms and you understand the contribution of genetics to those disease susceptibilities, then you can start to tailor therapies to the individual. And how hard is it to find out if a patient has a genetic variant like this that changes their response to drugs or defines their treatment? Well, I think that the real answer to that question depends on when this particular show will air because the field is moving so fast that if I gave you an answer today, in six months, the answer might be very, very different. 
if you go back in time a little bit, we've had a small number of what I would call boutique genetic tests that would give us some handle on rare diseases most commonly seen in childhood. But the idea that there were genetic variants in a large population of patients that modify your risk of having breast cancer, prostate cancer, atrial fibrillation, premature myocardial infarction, rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, all those common diseases, that idea was a twinkle in people's eye three or four years ago. And we've had a huge explosion in our understanding of the genetic variants that appear to predispose people to those kinds of very, very common diseases. Now, it's very early in that story. You could ask yourself, for example, if I have a variant, does that mean I should do something to prevent myself from getting diabetes, for example? If I have a variant, does that mean there's a specific drug out there for me? We don't know those answers yet. But when I went to medical school, we were taught cancer, atherosclerosis. Uh, Those are diseases that have a genetic component. But now, in the last three years, we've actually gotten the tools to actually begin to identify the genes that contribute to that risk. And it turns out to be a pretty interesting story, but I think we're very early. So right now, you can, for $500 to $1,000, send your DNA off to uh, any one of a number of companies, and they will, after a month or two, send you back access to a website, usually, that will detail your risk for prostate cancer, for atrial fibrillation. Now, all those risks are couched in terms that we're early in this story, that we don't actually know for sure whether that marker is in fact predictive of this disease. It just looks like it is. And we also don't understand, I guess an important lesson would be that the modern genetics doesn't say yes or no. It says your chances of getting something are increased a little bit or decreased a little bit. My hope is that we'll also be able to subtype diseases based on genetics as well, but that's a little bit further away. So it is possible to get common genetic variants tested, but the way in which they plug into practice right now is not so clear, and I think it will become clear in the next five or ten years. Let me just fast forward for a second and say that within five years, my guess is that a quarter to all of your listeners will have had their entire genome sequenced, and the cost of that will be less than $1,000, and the time it takes to do it will be something like half an hour. And the question then is going to be, that's really interesting. What am I going to do with that sequence? And that's the real challenge for modern genetic medicine, I think. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Dan Roden. We've been discussing the road to personalized medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.